All right, church, hey, take your Bible on a device, leatherback, paperback, whatever it is, and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Let me uh, just say a little to the other Biltmore Church campuses as well as the folks watching online, in particular, Doug from uh, Arden. Arden. we got a great church for you in Arden, Doug, that we would be glad to recommend. we got Sherry from Dillard, Georgia, and we have the Guffey Family Vacationing in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. So anyway, thank you guys uh, for tuning in. Also, let me just say this. Wherever you are, if we can serve you in any way, uh, please let us know. And if this is your first time back or first time here or the first time back in a while, if you want to just text the word welcome to 28282, somebody will be glad to uh, you get a little bounce back. Somebody will be glad to uh, you know pray with you, answer your questions that you might have. Again, if you're online, just put it in the chat section below. Somebody would love to serve you. And they, the campus pastors, and we would love to meet you in the lobby, atrium, whatever it is on that campus that is for you, next steps. We would love to do that, all right? There'll be a gift for you and your family just as a thank you for, uh, for being here. Let me give you one other thing before we jump in Ephesians 5. Uh, you guys have had an incredible response to uh, what we introduced last week called the Big Give. And you know the last several years, and as we come, out of, we come out of the pandemic and we had the floods a couple of months ago, the Big Give in December is basically uh, our effort as far as seven campuses collectively trying to minister to five different counties uh, in acts of generosity. Very intentional. Now, this is happening seven days a week. Uh, you know, 12 months a year, but this is a time where we are trying to collectively do this and do a big give. We're generous because God was generous with us in the gospel. And what we introduced last week is kind of part of this, we've identified 3,000 families in Western North Carolina that are in tremendous need and have a lot of food insecurity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come alongside, uh, we're going to pack up these boxes. we got a great partner in Manna, uh, got a great partner in uh, Flavor First, and we're going to be able to provide for them not just a week's worth of groceries, but there's a number of folks that lost a ton of stuff in those floods in Haywood County. And there'll be a number of awesome stories that because of your generosity, we're going to be able to come alongside and in some cases in a material way, come alongside them and sort of help get their life a little bit back uh, in order. So anyway, great job on that. If you want to participate, either sponsor a family or serve, uh, just go to builtmorechurch.com backslash the big give. And let me just say this for parents as well. You got a little scooter or a little missy or whatever your kids are, there is not a better life lesson. There is not a better picture that they could see than to see the parents actually in there put at a Christmas time saying, hey, you know what, we're either sponsoring a family or we're putting these food boxes together for a family. We might have to go without a couple of presents and then we go out actually and visit folks. So again, just go to that website. That'd be a great picture for them to see to say, hey, mom and dad just don't uh, just don't go to church. They actually are the church. So that's where we are. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, as you saw in the video, We've been in a deal called the Year of the Bible. The Year of the Bible, we started in January. We're going to end in, uh, in uh, the end of December. And what we've done is we've walked through some of the main themes in the Bible. We started in Genesis where uh, basically God created everything and said it is good. And then man messed up big time. And then throughout the Old Testament, what it is about, it's about all the Old Testament, every story, every character saying there is a rescuer coming. There is a redeemer coming. And so one of the things we talk about all the time is there's not a bunch of heroes in the Bible. There's one hero, his name is Jesus. The rest of us, we are villains who are pointing toward that rescuer. 
And then when you go over to the New Testament, you got a guy named John the Baptist. He steps out on the front porch and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so all the Old Testament is pointing to the rescuer. The Gospels say that is the rescuer. And then we're now in a section called the Epistles, which are small letters written to people just like you and me in local congregations around that area addressing very different things. How do we apply the Gospel to these different things like morals and money and today's topic would be on marriage. And so before we jump into marriage, in Genesis 2, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And ultimately, that loneliness, that acheness, that is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. But as far as human relationships, he has put the community there, he's put a church there, but he's also put marriage there. And marriage is both awesome and it's very difficult. But God created you for relationship. I'll give you this example. of Some of you all have seen that movie. It's kind of dating me a little bit, but Cast Away with Tom Hanks, all right? Some people love that movie. I would be in that camp. Some people hate that movie. That would be my wife. She's like, that is the most depressing movie. But it's got some awesome pictures in there. Spoiler alert, if you hadn't seen it, you got about three seconds to cover your ears because here is the gist of the story. you got a guy named Tom Hanks. He's a FedEx uh, airplane Guy, he's in an airplane, they crash. He's the only guy that survives it. He gets on a, des- a deserted island. He's the only one on this beautiful island. Some of you are like, man, that sounds awesome to me. But he is there for like a long, long time. Only guy there. And so he's struggling with this, and he's aching over loneliness. And one day, a volleyball washes up on the shore. And he names him Wilson. Why? Because it's a Wilson volleyball. And so for I don't know how many years, he puts Wilson there, puts a little smiley face on Wilson, and Wilson is his only companion. And so he talks to Wilson. He's got this place like, Wilson! It's super emotional. But finally, Tom Hanks, he gets tired of like the vacation on this deserted island. He makes a raft. He's going to make it go for it. And so he goes out on this raft. He hits a storm, makes it to the storm. The next morning, wakes up, storm is gone. But Wilson, the volleyball, somehow started to float away. And the current, he chases after him, he chases, and he can't get Wilson in one of the most climactic parts of the whole movie. He's like, Wilson, Wilson. And all that is saying is, he's like, he had, he would go to the extent of saying, the volleyball is my companion. In the same way that's representative of the fact that, listen, God did make you for relationship. And again, he gives you friends, he gives you a local church. Again, ultimately, it's fulfilled in your relationship with God through Jesus. But as far as importance that is both important and difficult, it's the marriage relationship. Now, I understand people watching online, people here in the room, uh, some of you are married, some of you are engaged, some of you are uh, single, some of you are single again. Uh, we're going to open, I mean, a lot of different, anytime you speak on marriage, there's a lot of different emotions and wounds uh, that, that come up. Uh, the first marriage went awesome for like a page, not even a page, like a half a page in your Bible. All right, God brings Adam or brings Eve to Adam. Adam, uh, not real, not a super, all, I mean, he's probably an eight on the Enneagram, and, and, but he even busts out in poetry. He's like, he starts writing poetry and song. He's so excited. But here's what you got to, that lasts for three verses. Three verses, he's like, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Three verses later, the family starts to crumble. The marriage starts to struggle. And so today what we're going to look at is uh, whether you're married, single, single again. There's not a marriage in this room. There's not a marriage watching online that you can't improve. There's also not a struggling marriage that you 
uh, that cannot be cannot be saved. All right, every marriage can get there, but um, the principles we're going to see today, whether you're single or married, in many ways undergird all of our relationships. But let me give you this one precursor, and then we're going to jump in the text. About halfway through the message, I'm going to give you one simple transforming question that's based on these verses, all right? It's not original with me. I've seen it numerous times in different ways. But it's one question based on these two verses that if you will do this, and I'll have you practice it a couple times, if you will do this, like even just like one time a day, over the next week or so, it will transform your relationships. Again, it'll help with boss and employee. It'll help with parent to child, child to parent, but it will transform it if it's husband to wife, wife to husband. And so it's gonna take a second to get there because it will be the most counterintuitive question you will ever ask. All that as introduction, here's the text. Ephesians chapter five, most people like to start in verse 22, especially husbands. We're actually gonna start in verse 20. Verse 20 says this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ. Let me read it again. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we all swing between that continuum between gratitude and entitlement, and it's the same thing in marriage. It's gratitude. I'm grateful for my spouse or entitlement. Why don't I have a better spouse? And before he even gets to that in verse 22, the context of Ephesians is, is one is like, no matter how sorry your marriage is, you've got so much to be grateful for if you are in Christ. And so here's the way, here's the basic outline of the entire book of Ephesians. For three chapters, it's all this deep theology and then he goes into application, chapter four, five, and six. So there's theology, and then there's the doxology, how we live. The first three chapters are those deep things, like it's not just about grace, it's about predestination, it's about God's glory, and then he goes into the application, into all the ways this is supposed to download into life. And so the first three chapters is the declaration of the gospel. Listen, God did for you what you and I could not do for ourselves, that Jesus paid the debt that you and I could not pay, and he paid the debt he did not owe, all right? So that's the first three chapters. And then he said, in light of that, this is the way this fleshes itself out, everything from the way you raise kids to the way you treat your spouse. And so before we get there, let me give you a couple of basic things that I know you'll say, well, I know that already. We got to get that out there, especially the second one you got to understand. But the first one is this. The first one you have to understand, and we're just going to jump right into the meat of it, is you have to understand that marriage, your marriage, your marriage is first and foremost, if you're a Jesus follower, you, it is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. That's what this whole passage is ultimately about. In verse 19, he says, why do you do this? You do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, why would you mutually submit to one another? You do so out of the reverence for Christ. If you go skip down a little bit further in there, here's the way he says, he says it in verse 32. He says, this is a mystery, it's profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What it means is, first and foremost, he's talking about two people who have asked and answered the big questions in life. It's like, who am I, who made me, that I was made by God and I was made for God and I was made for God's glory. Let me just jump right into it and here's what it says. Some of you are frustrated in your marriage because you think your marriage is about you. 
You think you're the one that sits on the throne and people ought to serve you and you're unhappy because your spouse is not serving you in the way you think your spouse ought to serve you. And if you're a Christ follower, what you got to put on the top shelf is the fact that first and foremost, my marriage is about the glory of God. My marriage is about how do I picture, how do I picture the gospel for people out there? Now here's, I know that this is so counterintuitive because we live in a culture, our culture is all about the ultimate goal in life is to find that special someone. I mean, I'm, I'm a C&W fan and 90% of Christian songs, if they're not about railroads and if they're not about trucks and if they're not about grandma, they're about finding that special someone out there. Finding that. Psychologists call this a love addiction. A love addiction. It's like, if I could just find, if I could just find Mr. Right, then all of my wounds would be healed. If I could just find Mrs. Right, then everything would go fine. And here's what's happening here is there is an innate desire, I think it's a God-given desire, that we all have, and that is we want to be known and we want to be loved. We want to be known completely and loved unconditionally. We want to be known completely. And so what happens is the counterfeits of those is we can either be, we can be uh, known and not loved, we can be known but not loved, and that's rejection. That's rejection. Known and not loved. You know what, I know you and I don't like what I see. Or you can be not known and loved, and if you're not known and loved, that's like a Hallmark card. That's sentimentality. That's shallow. That's just like, oh, I love you until I peel back the layers and get to know you, and you're still crazy. That's, that's what that is. But what you look at here, the gospel where Jesus Christ enters says, you know what? I don't just know you. I also love you. And that's what you got to get down on the front end before you look for your Savior to be in your marriage. you got to say, you know what? God knows me, and he loves me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. That's why we always say, you know what? Jesus doesn't just love the future version of you when you get your act together. He loves you right where you are. That's why we always say you run to God in repentance. You don't run from God in shame. And you're not going to do either if you don't know first and foremost the first three chapters that are all about what God did. It's not about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not about four ways to make your marriage work. First and foremost, your marriage is picturing the gospel because it's two people. And if two people come together in a marriage and they think the other one's the Savior, that is T-R-O-U-B-L-E. That's what that is. That really is. Let me be blunt. Let me, let me be really blunt. Okay. And listen, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But ladies, listen to me. Young ladies particularly. There's not a single guy out there that is going to fill the hole in your soul. There's not a single guy out there that is going to fix what is broken in your heart. There's just not. I don't care how awesome he is. I don't care if he's got the six-pack abs. I don't care if he's like super romantic. I don't care if you're like, oh, he's always loving me and serving me and complimenting me. That's awesome. Here's my promise to you. If you I, he's a great gift. He could be a great gift. He's a terrible God. If he, God calls that idolatry. And what happens with idols is they fall in on themselves because he was never designed to bear that weight. Guys, the same thing. You look for Mrs. Wright, and you're like, man, she looks awesome in bikini, and she, like, cooks awesome meals, and she's like, she, she lets me come into the house and put my feet up, and I get to watch ESPN, and she cooks ribeye steaks, like, every single night. It's, like, awesome. If that's your idol, eventually, what you idolize, you will eventually demonize, and that happens in marriages, marriages all the time. Here's what I love what Keller says. Keller says, the picture of marriage that's given here in this text is not of two needy people unsure of their own value and purpose, finding their significance and meaning in one another's arms. If you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum, a giant sucking sound. 
He said, rather, Paul assumes that each spouse has already settled the big questions of life, why they were made by God and who they are in Christ. They've already, they've already done that. And so um, over and over, it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel, picture of the gospel. Let me put it this way. Marriage is supposed to be a telescope, and our culture makes it a microscope. Your marriage, the thing about it, you're like, that cannot happen. I mean, you know how we fought on the way to church this morning. Your marriage, though, is supposed to be a telescope. Telescope takes something far away and brings it in close. It takes something far away. It's like, I can't figure out it's so far away. But a telescope brings it in close. So when you're lost neighbors, when you're people that don't know Jesus and they look at your marriage, what they're supposed to see is when they look at the, the service and the forgiveness and the caring and the patience and, and the sacrifice and the commitment, they're supposed to in some way see a picture in a picture. The way that she treats him with love and respect and grace and forgiveness and all that, and yet she tells me, invites me to church all the time, I can kind of make the connection. And so it's supposed to be that picture in a picture. What we make it out to be is kind of, we make it out to be a microscope and you take something and make it bigger and make it Hallmark and make it Hollywood and that's not what it's supposed to be. And if we didn't know that, here's what, uh, let me give you the second fact before we jump into the big question. And here's one that everybody would say, and this probably is not an awesome time to say amen if you're sitting next to your spouse, but marriage is hard, correct? All right, well played. You didn't say, yeah, well played. Um, Marriage is difficult. Marriage is really hard. Marriage is probably, I think, arguably the most difficult thing, definitely the most difficult relationship uh, you will have. Because, you know, for a lot of times people get shocked at that, Even especially Christians get shocked at that because they got told by a church that if you just love Jesus and read your Bible, then marriage is going to be like, it's like awesome. It's going to be easy. It is awesome. It's not easy at all. You know why? Because you're married to a sinner, and so is she. And if you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you, I, you're probably going to cause some irritation to the person that you are now living with. And you know the reason that happens? And because you're like, well, I was single and I never had any issues with me. I mean, I was single for 20 years. I never had any issues with me because it's just you, bro. You are the only one there. I mean, now what happens is you're like, I didn't, it never bothered me that I had toothpaste on the mirror. It never bothered me a bit. And it's causing like a huge friction in our marriage. You know why? Because you didn't care if you were a slob. You just didn't care. But you know what? Now it's about both of you living in that covenant relationship. And uh, let me, well, some of us, and I know we got a before you say I do class even in here and all that kind of stuff. And some, of, some people, some young couples are like naively say, you know, love, pastor, you just, I hear you talking about how it's hard. But you know, it's, we're the exception. And love shouldn't be hard. Love shouldn't be so hard. Why do you think that? Why do you, why do you think love shouldn't be hard? I mean, seriously, why do you think Love should not be difficult. You know the reason that people think that love should not be difficult is because we buy into the lie that that person that we meet is supposed to complete us. Oh, he just complete. That's Jerry Maguire, man. That's not Jesus. That's Jerry Maguire. He completes me. He completes me. That guy's not going to complete you. We can't even lift the toilet seat right, all right? So he's not going to complete you at all. Now, the idea is it's an awesome gift. And Paul's saying over and over again, it's, listen, this is an awesome, awesome thing. But the truth is, whoever you marry is going to disappoint you probably more than anybody else. And probably some of the biggest pains you have and some words you can't get out of your mind 
and some bitterness that you struggle with is going to come from that person that you said vows to. And when you look at this, you are married to a sinner. That's like for three chapters, it's like you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but now you've been made alive, but you were married to a sinner. You were married to a sinner. You're both married to a sinner. Now, it's a phenomenal blessing, and you get to be with somebody that is awesome, and you can be infatuated, but bottom line is you got to, re- and this is why we do covenants instead of contracts in marriage. This is why marriage is about a covenant, which goes back to the fact that it's supposed to picture what Jesus has done for you. Understand that? Now, the reason that's hard, again, is you've got to always remind yourself it's a covenant, not a contract, because we live in a contract age, and that's fine. Most everybody in here, most everybody watching online, you have a contract with somebody. You got a contract with a phone company. You got a contract with an apartment complex. You got a contract with, you know, maybe a mortgage or a car or whatever. And basically, a contract is fine when it comes to goods and services, because that's what a contract is. It's two people or two entities who exchange a formal contract that basically is the exchange of goods and services. A contract says, if you do this, then I will do this. And as long as you do this, I will do this. But in the contract language, it'll also say something to the effect of, if you ever fail to do this, or you fail to do that, or you fail to do this, this contract is now null and void. That's why some of the dumbest advice that we ever will give people who are getting ready to be married is like, hey, just remember, marriage is 50-50. That's so stupid. All right, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Marriage is 50-50? I mean, honestly, if it's supposed to picture the gospel, do you think that's what Jesus said to us? Do you think that's what Jesus said to sinners that needed to be redeemed? Hey, I'll come halfway. If you come halfway, that's not what he says at all. He's like, he came all the way. A covenant, on the other hand, what God made with you, when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that I'll demonstrate that I love you while you were still sinners, I'll still die for you. A covenant is 100-100. That's why you have covenant language in vows. And by the way, sometimes people, and it's really become pretty much in vogue the last six, seven years, is, is people say, hey, can you do a wedding? And if it works out on the calendar, we'd love to do it. But, the, but then they'll but almost always like, hey, we're going to write our own vows. Is it okay if we write our own vows? Can we write our own vows? And I'm always like, will you use them? I'm like, well, it depends. Depends on what the vows say. I got to see what the vows actually say because here's what some of them actually say. They basically, their vows that they write is like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. As long as you smell like Skittles and cotton candy, I'm going to like love, I'm going to love you. But if that's all you have, that's a contract because what that says is when you don't smell like that or when you put on 25 pounds or when you don't mow the lawn, or when you're not like super respectable and working hard and being that kind of person that I dreamed that you would be, then I'm out. That is, can you imagine, can you imagine hearing those vows at a wedding? I mean, think about it. Think about, let's go say you get an awesome, you're invited to a wedding and you get like a, you're supposed to take a gift. You all know that, right? You're supposed to take, okay, so you're supposed to take a gift. So you take a gift and you spend some money on it. You get a blender or something like that and you, you put that on that table. And then you take your seat, and then they come out there, and they look at each other, all dreamy-eyed and all this stuff, and this guy starts going into the vows, and, and all of a sudden, the vow starts like, you know, for better or for worse, you're like, check, richer for poor, check, you know, as long as you mow the lawn, as long as you're still fit and trim, as long as you wear the right makeup, if not, I'm out of here. What would you do? Seriously. What would you do? I mean, I don't know. If we were in that wedding, and we were sitting there, and we'd paid whatever for a blender, I'm saying, baby, let's get the blender, and let's leave, because this isn't lasting like a month, all right? It's not going to last at all. That's because it's a covenant, not a contract. That's the whole part. So 
All that being said, one of the main ways it comes out is the fact that you got married to a person who directionally is self-centered. Directionally, they look inward. They look for their needs, their own needs first. So here's what verse 21 says again. Submitting to one another. This is every Christian, but he's about to go into the way it fleshes out in marriage. Submitting to one another out of the overflowing, overwhelming, what Jesus has done in my life, chapter one to three, out of reverence for Christ. So look at me. This is what the principle is. It's called mutual submission. Mutual submission. The way it fleshes itself out. I mean, I'm thinking I might do the other other verses. We're gonna jump into Hebrews next week. We might just do the rest of Ephesians 5. Pray for them. I'm not sure uh, at this point after this morning. But mutual submission basically says, you know what? Your deal is a bigger deal than my deal. Technically, it's a picture of military when somebody is like a certain rank and somebody else is another rank and that person at the lower rank voluntarily says, you know what, I'm coming up under this other person's rank for the betterment of the unit so that the unit can function good. There is like this, okay, I'm coming, I am submitting myself to this person. And so before you get to all the other stuff that husbands love to jump on, this says there's mutual submission. Paul would say in Philippians 2, basically, you know what? I would consider your interest before my interest. That's mutual submission. Mutual submission, again, is your deal is a bigger deal than my deal. Mutual submission is I'm going to leverage my time, my assets, my power, everything that I've got. I'm going to do that for your benefit. I'm here. I am here for your sake. I told you I told you it was counterintuitive. I told you it was countercultural. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to make this tangible by one simple transforming question that I'm going to have you repeat. If you're watching online and you're by yourself, do it anyway. It's going to, you'll feel better. It's going to be great. But I'm going to say it. I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to put it up on the board. And then I'm going to count three. And then we're just going to say it a couple of times together because it's going to feel like gravel coming out of your mouth initially. All right? All right? It's not going to be like some ambient. This is going to be like gravel coming out of your mouth. So here's the question. What can I do to help you? Mutual submission says, you know what, your deal's bigger, your interests are bigger. doesn't mean that they are. It means that I'm going to count them bigger. And so the question we can say is then, what can I do to help you? So I'm going to count to three. And this is probably the time where you don't want to look at your spouse if you happen to be sitting next to them because you're like you're getting a fight or something. So just look straight ahead, count of three. All you're going to do is what can I do to help you, right? So one, two, three. What can I do to help you? All right, one more time. One, two, three. What can I do to help you? All right, some of you actually do need to look at So if you're privileged enough to be sitting next to your spouse, Go ahead and look at them. We're going to go a third time, all right? Don't, don't grimace, don't snarl, don't do any of that stuff, all right? So one, two, three. What can I do to help you? I mean, that is, that's it. Let's close, let's go. All right, that, I mean, that would, that would be like, that's the awesome start. Now, I would say this. It helps in a lot of other relationships. So students, students sometimes will say, uh, 
man, I came to Christ and I so wish, I was talking to one earlier uh, in the, after the first service, and it's like, I wish my parents, I wish my parents would do this, and I wish my parents would come to Christ, and I wish they would, you know, all this. And bottom line is, um, can you imagine if you just, if you're a high schooler and you're like, I want my parents to come to Christ and they're not interested in church and they're not interested in the Bible or gospel. Can you imagine the impact that, that God could use and impact on them if all of a sudden you walked in this afternoon and it's like, hey, dad, what can I do to help you today? I mean, you'd have to pick them up off the ground and they probably would say, well, nothing, nothing, and nothing, but they would be amazed. Hey, parents, it's not a terrible thing to do occasionally with your kids. I know you give all the time, but just ask them. That way it doesn't get acrimonious. You know how those can get kind of negative? I got to take you to ballet and Little League and blah, 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 blah. Hey, what can I do to help you today, baby? What can I do? But where it really hits the road is asking that question, putting mutual submission into place with wives and husbands and husbands and wives. That's what the text does. And it goes, husbands first. And so when it comes to husbands and husbands first, Let's, uh, let's take that. Husbands. And I've been a husband uh, a while and uh, never been a wife, all right? So kind of clueless in that regard. But when it comes to husbands, um, here's some things that we can falter on and here's some things, here's some easy ones. Here's some easy wins. I'm trying to help you out, bro. This is like, these are some easy wins. But just imagine that you would come in, let's just say you work, you work till five or six at night. Can you imagine, because the temptation, and I know the temptation, the temptation is, is after you've worked or after you've done whatever, do you walk in and they, the temptation is to like, huh, I'm home and I can relax and I've been serving people all day. And especially if you got little kids, if you're in that stage of life and you got different stage, if you're in that stage of life where you got a little four-year-old, little six-year-old, little nine-year-old, you are busy, all right? You're busy but you come home and it's like, ah, oh. you're like, well, how do you know that? My wife writes you this week? No, man, I just looked, I looked at my own checkered past. We had two little boys two years apart. And I remember, I think I may have told you the story before. Let me give you a 60-second version of how this could play out in your home. So 20-something years ago, I was what they call an executive pastor, which dealt with all the administration stuff, didn't have the fun stuff like preaching. We would do like all the administration, all the hiring, all the finance, all that kind of stuff. But the only, the fun thing was I did about 90% of the hiring, which meant I had to do a lot of the interviewing. And so when I would interview some dude, what would happen is I would take him to, you all think my favorite restaurant is Papacitas, but it's actually just at the same way it's Papa Do's, which is like Cajun food. And so every time we had anybody to hire, like, all right, and I would meet them for an interview lunch at Papa Do's, and I would always get this stuff called crawfish etouffee. Come on now. Crawfish etouffee, heavy onion, heavy, 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 heavy spices. And so I'd eat that and then go the rest of my day, and I'd walk in, little five-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, I can't remember how old they were. So I'd walk in there, I'd kiss Lori, and I promise you, this happened like, I'm slow. So it took like four times for me to like, mouthwash before I went home. And so I'd walk in there, I would kiss her, and she would go, and she'd been dealing with two little boys all day long. You know, she hadn't had time to even make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I walk in thinking, man, I've been serving God all day. I've been working hard. I'm just like kingdom work, and it's time for somebody to serve me. And I would walk in, I'd kiss her on the lips, and her first words were, you had an interview today, didn't you? You had an interview. You had had etouffee, didn't you? Well, you know, it's awesome. I hadn't had, I hadn't had time to, I hadn't had, I hadn't had time to go to the bathroom. It's awesome. What you, you know, it's like, and we would mark off our territories. And I'm like, well, who are you? I've been working hard all day, and I, you know, I've been trying to provide. And then she would kind of, and she actually did this before I did. It's like, hey, she flipped it, and she became the servant well before I did. 
But husbands, what if you just ask, you know, what can I do to help? And here's the reason I know. I know guys. I know guys. I know husbands. And the reason you don't want to ask that question today is because you're scared of what she might say. You are. You are scared of what she might say. If you look at her and go, baby, what can I do? What can I do to help you? What can I do to help you? You're scared. She might say something like, hey, let's go on a date. Let's go to Cancun or let's do what you're afraid of or tell me your feelings, all right? Something you're like, I'm not sure. And the key to this is you got to understand, this is going to jumpstart just, you guys don't even, half y'all been on like parallel voyages for the last five years and then the last 18 months with COVID and you thought, oh, we get to spend all this time together and now you're like, you know what? We don't even like each other anymore. Now you laugh, some of you. Some of you know that's like, that's why I'm at church today. Because I heard you like preaching on marriage, and I was like, this is like our last, this is, we're holding on, we're holding on with just everything we got. So here's what he says, husbands, verse 33. Like, how do I do this? Verse 33 says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then to the wives, it says, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now listen, to, hey guys, a couple more minutes. Do not, wives, please don't, man, don't, don't do the elbow right now, because your time's coming, all right? So just, husbands, he's already said, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, that's like, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's down in verse 25. So he's already talked about, I mean, how did Jesus love the church? How did Jesus love you? Patiently, sacrificially, I mean, died for you. All those things that, it's like, that's the way I want you. But here, that's not what he says. He says, I want you to love your wife as you love yourself, as myself. I was like, what does he mean by that? I don't know all that he means, but I kind of know part of what he means. And the reason is there's a guy named Peter who basically wrote the pragmatic manual from what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Now, don't turn there. Ephesians 5, down to the end of the chapter, is deep theology. Deep theology, even when it comes to marriage. Because he's like, actually, this is about you and Jesus. But here's the illustration of marriage. But you go over to Peter, and Peter's not a real deep theologian. Peter's like a mud flaps kind of, you know, diesel truck kind of guy. I mean, that's who he is. And here's the way he puts it. He doesn't even use, I mean, here, there's like five verses for the husbands. Peter has one verse, one verse. Here's what he says. Here's just part of the one verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. He says, husbands, he says, live with your wives, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wife in an understanding way. In other words, live with your wife according to knowledge. In other words, be a PhD in your wife. Try to figure out what makes her tick, what she's afraid of. We sometimes make fun of that five love languages deal. I mean, that, that book, it's like, that's actually a pretty good book. Because half of us are clueless. I'll put it this way. I was married for like 15 years, and I didn't even know. I even taught the marriage counseling at that Houston church, used that book, and still didn't know my own wife's love language. You're like, well, you're a doofus. But he says, know yourself. And so think about the way you know yourself. You know your weight, probably. You lie about it, but you know your weight. You probably know how far you can run. I know how many cups of coffee I can have before I get the shakes. 
I mean, I know that stuff. And he says, you know, the same way that you know yourself and all these little things you like, what you do on a day off, he says, transition that, and I want you to love your wife like that. Just like you know yourself and you know everything about you, why don't you you love your wife like that? You're like, how can I do that? Truth of the matter is most guys, we only know about three different, this comes up about three different times a year. All right? Ladies, when does it come up? Three different days. Anniversary, birthday, Valentine's Day. It's like, man, we're, we're clutch when it comes to those three days. And what he's saying is this. It's in what's called the present tense, which means this is like a day-by-day decision for me to ask the question, how can I help her? How can I help her flourish as the woman God made her? And so I would say this, ask some questions. Take some notes. If there's one thing, do some research. So instead of that baton death march that you do when you go to the outlet mall, and you're like, you know, you can go run seven miles, you go to the outlet mall, and he's like, water, water. I mean, it's, it's you're, where's the bench? I got to sit on the bench. Why don't you just take some notes on what she's looking at? It's like, man, she's looking at that. She's looking at that. She's talking about this. Or just ask some questions. The gold part about asking questions is you ask a question and you don't have to talk anymore. I don't mean that rude. I'm just saying ask a question. Ask some easy ones. And you can ask some hard ones. So if you want to love your wife as yourself, ask some questions like, hey, what was the, before you were age 20, what was the happiest time of your life? See, here's the day, I've been married over 30 years, and I'm still like learning stuff about Lori that I never knew. And just about two weeks ago, I asked this question, what was the happiest part of your life before the age of 20? And then obviously the corresponding question would be, what was the most painful part of your life before 20? Because I didn't know her before that. What was the most painful part? And then just listen. Then you can ask some, then you can, she started this because she was asking questions, and I thought it was quizzes off the internet. And then I thought, no, she's just making these quizzes up. But it's, it's a way she wanted to hear me. And I'm like, I'm going to put it back. And so ask anything. Hey, what would, how much would it, how much, we were driving down Brevard Road. How much would it cost? Or no, I said, baby, how much would you have to be paid for you to run across, the, for you to wade across the French Broad River? She's like $1,000. I'm like, woman, you've got to charge way more than $1,000 to become nuclear, all right? You have to, you've got to become that. And so just ask some questions, ask some questions. But the biggest question is, what can I do to help? Before I get to the wives, um, the greatest thing you can do for your wife is to love Jesus. Listen to me, guys. The greatest, greatest thing I can do for our church is not to preach sermons and not to try to cast vision. It's to love Lori. That's the greatest thing that I can do. That's the greatest thing you can do is just to love Jesus. You love Jesus. If I love Jesus, guess, guess what? If I love Jesus, Lori's going to get blessed If I love Jesus, church is going to get blessed. Greatest thing you can do that will bless you, bless your kids, bless your wife, is you love Jesus. Here's what I've I've been doing this thing a long time. And here's what I've seen. I've seen it. I know it's not not like super politically correct, but I've seen this so many times. It's true 98% of the time. You see a student get saved and the ripple effect in their families it's, it's, it can be awesome, and there's some awesome stories, but it's, 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 not, it's not overwhelming usually. And even a wife, if she comes to Christ and she says, you know what, I want Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross somehow counted for me. Or she gets really serious about her faith. And it's like, we got to get in community and read by. When she gets serious, it has a bigger impact, and sometimes the kids are affected, sometimes dad is affected. But you want to see a family change, and this happens when God gets a hold of a dad, 
And when a dad says, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Christ, I'm going to give him to, then statistically, it just is overwhelming the impact on the family. And so daddy was like, what can I do today? Well, the first thing is like, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I'm not saying are you religious or even a church member or you a deacon. What I'm asking you is, has there been a time when you repented and embraced Jesus? And then are you serious about that? Are you serious? Because you know what? Kids can tell when dad is a faker. They can. They can tell when dad's a faker, when dad says, you know what? Jesus is important. His bride's important. And then, hey, let's, uh, let's go next month. All right. A little chilly in here after that one. So here, let me, let me, do, let me jump to the wives. And the ladies, listen to me. Pastor loves you. What he says in verse 33, he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And when you take the word respect and honor, here's what's going to happen. If you go up to your husband today and you say, how can I help you? I know some of you are like, he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. And I understand the pain. But again, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for the glory of God. You're not doing it primarily for him. It's like you didn't deserve it either, and yet Jesus, Jesus poured out grace to you. But when you go up to him and you say, what can I do to help? Here's probably the answer. Nothing. Nothing. Don't need any help. I'm doing fine. Probably is what's going to happen. But even asking the question, even asking the question is a communication that, guess what? I'm coming up under and I'm helping you with whatever that burden is you're dealing with. I recognize whatever that burden Both of you have burdens, but you're telling him, I'm coming up, I'm aware of your burdens. Here's the question, ladies. What if you related to him through the filter of how can I communicate respect to him? You got those five long languages? I promise you, I promise you a love language of your husband is honor and respect. I promise. One survey did, they asked, they asked husbands, they said, if you had to choose between being unconditionally loved, if you had to choose, if you have to choose between loved or respected, which would you choose? Now you think about that. You want to be respected or loved, you think most people would go love. 75, 76% of husbands said, if I got to choose, I would rather be unloved and respected than disrespected and loved. Because I... Respect is a man's love language nine times out of ten. Let me just get let me get real. Let me get real with you. Most every guy, including myself, every single man is born with a fundamental question. That fundamental question is: Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? And ultimately, that's the, what God uses for the gospel. It's like you know what? You don't have what it takes. That's why Jesus has to do for you what you could never do for yourself. But He's asking the question. Do I have what it takes? And for the first 18, 16 years of a guy's life, he tries to, he tries to get that question answered from his dad. And from his dad, and, and here's the deal, that's why dads that either die early or dads that desert, their kids end up trying to, they're gonna prove it, even if they don't know their dad, they're trying to do that. They're trying to prove themselves to their dad through sports, through grades, through accolades, through music. And then here's what happens. Then God puts the wife to be the loudest echo of the gospel in that man's life. He puts the wife there to be the loudest echo of the gospel in his life. Ladies, you're going to either be a lift to your husband 
or you're going to be a lid on him. You're either going to be a lift or you're going to be a lid. Because uh, what you, you have no idea the power you have over your husband. You have no idea. I mean, he could be rough, tough. You have no idea the power, particularly of what you say. I mean, it's true in my house. I mean, think about it. Uh, because of what God's done in our church, you, first of all, you guys are super sweet. You all write tons of, I get tons of great emails. You all are very encouraging. Sermon help, thought about all this kind of stuff. You all been a little crazy during COVID, but other than that, you all are like super, super encouraging. Super encouraging. And because of what God's done in the church, there's sometimes some cool opportunities that I get. I will just tell you, Lori's opinion of a sermon is like light years above 50 good emails, or bad emails for that matter. If I like, and I can tell, she'll never say that's a bad sermon, but I can tell. We've been married long enough. Hey, how'd that go, baby? Mm, it's good. Oh, got to change that thing up. Change that baby up. I'm not going to preach that again. But if she could, and even little stuff. I mean, I kind of teased with you one time. It's like, I can get all this cool stuff, and then she can just like, hey, I can't open this pickle jar. Hercules, Hercules. That's what I feel like. It's like Hercules. Like, I just, it's like that Superman. That's what I feel like just because it's like she's proud. She's proud. And I'll, the truth of the matter is, sometimes she'll say some good stuff that I know isn't completely true about me. And, and, and guys and ladies, don't ever, and this might not ever, but sometimes what happens is you will compare your husband to the guy on the platform. And that, that is not fair to him. Because you know, this is the best 40 minutes I got, all right? That's what you're seeing. You're seeing the best 40 minutes of my week. So don't go, you know, if you were the spiritual leader like Pastor Bruce is, then we'd follow. No, 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 that ain't fair. That's not fair. And so when you look at this, uh, get, let me give you one example, and then we'll, we're going to pray. Ladies, one thing that I just have noticed is, because I know it's, some of you are like, well, who, it's my job to keep him humble. It's really not. It's not your job. It's, it's not your job. It's not your job to keep him humble. The world will keep him humble, and God will humble him if he needs to, but it's not your job to keep him humble. And try hard not to correct him in public unless he's, like, going off the deep end. Here's the way. Here's the way. It happens in the lobby. It happens in the lobby. And I know you are going to come up and talk to me in the lobby now, but here's what happens in the lobby. Some guy will come up, and it's like, man, I haven't been to church in a while. This is awesome. And then we start talking about something like, hunting or something like that. He's like, man, we go down there, we hunted. I took my cousin out there and we got, we got bear, we got deer, we got, you know, it's just amazing. It's all this stuff. And then she'll go, uh, actually, uh, honey, you didn't really take your cousin. Uh, actually, we hadn't gotten a deer there in like three years. Uh, actually, bears don't even come. You know, it's like, don't correct him, right? Doesn't even matter. Doesn't even matter. Because here's what happens. I promise you, you think you're correcting him and you think you're humbling. What you're doing is you're killing him. So if you would just, uh, what can I do to help you? And some of you are like, I've been gone too far. I've gone, been gone too long. I've done too much. And you're like, why would I do this? Because Jesus did it for you. 
That's the bottom line. The only reason you would do this is because Jesus did it for you. That's why he says all of this stuff, you do it out of reverence. You do it out of reverence for Christ. It's like Jesus treated me this way. Because here's the bottom line. Let me ask you this. Let me go one bit. Ladies, do you think is what you're trying, is that working? No, it's not. And what you see in the Bible is the way God changes us is through grace. Now, I'm not saying if there's not hard discussions to be had, and it's only one sermon. It's not talking about, obviously, if something's way off. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is the Bible says in Romans, it says that it was God's kindness that led us to repentance. In the way that at least I've seen, the way that seems to be God's formula for changing the man, it's the wife loving and living and being in love with Jesus and then God changes the man. And so husband or wife, what can I do to help you? I'm going to do it out of the reverence for Christ. And again, the, the thing would be, he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it, but Jesus deserves it. And so we sang a song a little while ago that was called Exalted. Exalted over all. It's an old song. We, I love that song. But one of the things is, it says this, one name is higher, one name is stronger. One name is higher. And then it says over every throne which means it's something in authority. And some of you are like, my home, my marriage cannot be different. It can be different. The Bible is full of the fact that, you know what, God can make a difference in your marriage. I'm not saying it's going to be all, again, Cadillacs and cotton candy by Tuesday. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if you ask the question and you say, you know what, I'm going to mutually submit and say, what can I do for you? God says this. God says two chapters earlier, God is able to do immeasurably more than you can even think or imagine. The Old Testament says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. The Bible says, you know what? I can restore the years that the locusts have stolen. And so you're sitting here and going, I'm separated or he's gone or whatever. You can't change him. You can't change her. What you can do is you can repent. You can pray. You get a chance to be here with your spouse. You can come up to this altar. We got even prayer benches at this camp. We're getting them everywhere, but we got we got like a prayer benches to say, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to pray. And you're like, I don't know what to pray, or I've never prayed with my spouse, or whatever. Well, this is what a great time to start. Men, here's the one thing you will battle all your life. Everybody thinks uh, the biggest battle for men is lust or pornography or or morals or whatever. The biggest battle you have is passivity. That's the biggest battle. Adam was right there by Eve when his family was going about to be taken down the wrong road. And all he did is he just sat there. He just sat there. He was right there. And what I'm asking you is don't just sit there. Don't just sit there. Maybe you've never done this before, but I'm going to ask you if you have the privilege of sitting next to your spouse and you don't know what to say. I'm saying, man, if the Lord leads, why don't you uh, come in here in just a second and just hit, hit your knees and like, I don't know what to pray. Well, just pray the song. The song will be just being sung gently over you. Some of you have somebody, maybe your spouse is gone. Just pray for them. Don't just pray God would bring it back together. Pray for them. Maybe your heart's hard and you're like, man, I was sitting there going to see the lawyer in the morning. You think I'm being melodramatic? Every time I've said that, somebody says, I was the guy going to see a lawyer in the morning. And you need to say, God, I tell you what, I'm not about a contract anymore. I'm about a covenant. And I'm going to do what you told me to do. And I'm going to trust you to bring the feelings back for the glory of God and for the good of my family. All right? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, usually have you bow your heads, close your eyes. We're not going to do that. I'm just going to say, if you want to pray for your spouse, with your spouse, maybe you got a prodigal and their family's busted up. Why don't you just get up out of your seat right now and you come and you pray. All right. I'll pray for you at the end right now. Don't wait. Come on up. Uh, Guys, I'm not trying to be misogynistic, but man, take some initiative. Take some initiative and say, baby, I don't know what I'm going to say. 
We never pray together. I'm not trying to act like I'm Joe spiritual. What I am gonna say is we need God's help. We need God's help in our home and God promises to do that. And so we wanna exalt him. And so I'll be praying, be singing, and then I'll pray here in just a few minutes. tears and we we take at your word that you hide our tears in a bottle that you you see the pain you see the anger you see the frustration you see all of that God we take Psalm 127 that says you know what unless the Lord builds the house the labors labor in vain and so God what we pray is and what we're asking for and what we're calling out for we're asking we're crying out in our day of trouble that you would deliver us and that we would glorify you and our prayer is particularly for marriages that are struggling coming out of a crazy 18 months God I want to pray for that husband that literally is wants to throw in the towel he's already checked out emotionally maybe even checked out physically God, I pray you would arrest his heart, grip his heart, and he would come to Jesus. God, I pray that he would see the love you have for him, not just the man he wants to be or could be, but the guy he is right now. And that he would approach you in humility, and he'd say, you know what, Jesus, I want you to be my savior, and I want you to make me the man I wanna be. God, I pray for that lady who's lost all hope that things could ever be different. God, you are the God of hope. I pray you give her hope, I pray you give her joy, I pray you give her patience. I pray you give her grace and forgiveness. And God, our prayer is throughout this week, you would bring to our mind over and over and over again, multiple times a day, that we can both ask and demonstrate to our spouse, what can I do to help you? What can I do to help? What can I do to help? God, I pray for us guys, help us be a student of our wives. Help us to understand and then come in there and help her to flourish. God, I pray for the ladies in here that you give them an appreciation, those small things, those things that maybe have been overwhelmed by the stuff that hasn't been done, the things that actually he does do. 
Got to pray for conversations that'll be going on right after church today. Got to pray for the people kneeling at home. I pray for people crying out at home, watching online saying, it can't be different, it can't be different. Got to pray if we're not in a marriage covenant right now that we would understand first and foremost, you are our friend, you are our partner. We are your bride. Got to pray to restore hope in the marriages, in this church, and that that would be a witness, that would be a telescope to people all over, over Western North Carolina. You know what? There is a God who serves. There is a God who's committed. There is a God who loves. There is a God who is patient. There is a God of covenant, and he loves me. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.